Hi, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm your host, Lou Rosenfeld. I like to say, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, we're just a bunch of blind men trying to figure out that elephant. And I'm joined today by someone else who's in pursuit of truth, beauty, and insight, Jamika Burge. Hi, Jamika. How are you? Hi, Lou. What a wonderful way to intro our conversation. It's the standard way I do it, but I want you to know I polished it up a little extra just for you. Did you? Well, it sounds like it. I loved it. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. Thanks for being here. Uh, Jamika is the head of AI Design Insights at Capital One, co-founder of Black Computer, a conference that we'll be talking about in a moment. And she's also one of our curators for the Advancing Research Conference, which takes place March 10th through 12th virtually. Uh, we'll be talking about that as well. Mika, it's been really fun working with you uh, these last months on the conference. But, um, uh, you know, it, this is what happens in this field is I find I meet a lot of people. They blow me away. We start working together. And then I realize I know something about them, but I don't really know everything. And um, we don't have time for everything, but I want to hit some of the highlights. Yeah. Like what kind of journey have you been on to get you to become a head of AI Design Insights at a larger bank? And what does that actually mean? Yeah, I was going to say, what does that mean? Um, I, I, I'm one of those people who I think when you work with me, you're not quite sure who I am and what I do, because I actually do quite a bit more than uh, most of the roles I've ever had in life. But I'll, I'll say that I'm trained as a computer scientist. All of my degrees from BS, auto PhD are in computer science. But I'm one of those people who never was good enough, at least I'll say, to wish to sit in a cubicle and code all day. They're Lucky you. That's better than I do. So I, I tip my hat to them here in podcast land. But acknowledge that I'm really much more interested in connecting with the humanity of the technologies that we create and put produced in the world. And so I've always focused on human-centered design as a part of my work. And it has sent me from working um, uh, at DARPA and working on work that allows us to support service people and tracking their, helping them to track their, their, their mental health and their, their abilities to connect with others um, and also to develop uh, technologies that were game-based in teaching science hmm. and STEM-based concepts to K through third year students. Uh, all Wait, the that, way that was at DARPA? Yeah, can you believe it? Can you believe it? My it, defense tax payments are going to educate children. Wait a minute. That's well, what better way to do it? Now, for, this was, you know, this was called the Engage program and it uh, you can still find information if you were to if you go online and do a search um, at DARPA and see some of the work that was done there. Lots of great teams were on this project and the idea, at least before you know the project ended and we moved on to other really great things, was to provide a way to encourage young people to engage in STEM mm -hmm. uh, concepts. And in particular, the games that we created were anywhere between algebra 
and Newtonian physics, right? Which at listening to these terms sound like really far-fetched high-level order thinking kinds of concepts and they are, but in a game, they just become really fun ways to interact with characters and concepts on screen. And that is a really wonderful way to both galvanize the impact of games and learning with a set of topics that we'd love to increase awareness and participation in along the space of math and science, technology, and engineering. And so the Engage program, aptly titled, was a way to do just that, to engage young people in learning when it ordinarily wouldn't be considered learning. It was actually kind of fun. But that's uh, sneaky. It's sneaky, but it's also sticky for those who are in education. Ways of making something where it's fun to learn and keeps students and learners coming back is exactly the definition of engagement. It's sticky. It makes it where people actually, it's hard to, for them to put it down and let it go. And it's so enrapturing that people actually forget almost that they're learning in those environments. So how does that connect with technology? Well, because again, I am a technologist, but I never really wanted to, to do just technology. And it's those kinds of projects that have always spoken to me. How are we using technology for the greater good, for people? And that actually was a great way of thinking about technology connected with humanity and getting to a point where we could even think to the level of supporting young humans as they grow and learn in really meaningful and hopefully fun ways. But started or, or you know spent some time there and then did some work um, at UCLA to continue that work in, in the assessment space. Have also uh, spent a little bit of time. Um, I did a postdoc for a few years and started my own company with with consulting and research. Um, but found my way to, to Capital One where I came in as a, a researcher. In fact, um, a human UX researcher where my role was initially creating content that mm -hmm. helped us to train other people, other designers, other technologists, product owners and analysts with doing their own research so that we could scale the ability to at least do usability kinds of testing on your own. And so a bit of a research democratization work. Totally, which is something that I really subscribe to. And it helped us to scale awareness of research, its value and its power and its impact uh, when it ordinarily would have fallen to a small group of people who were already overworked and, and overextended. And so it helped us to move from being the doers of the work to people who helped to teach others how to do the work, which was really helpful for us because then we were able to not just help them to do more of the work with us, but we could also focus on what I like to call the higher order kinds of thinking around research and strategy and even connecting with, with other partners on informing the roadmap for what do we do next now that we've done this research or we've got these other kinds of answers that are coming as a part of what we're learning as a result of the research, what do we do with, with those nuggets, with those insights? So let me ask and, you something about uh, yeah. the whole this whole issue of uh, democratizing research, because when I first heard that term, that's probably been a few years now. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a term that was accompanied by lots of excitement and positivity. 
And uh, like a lot of things, you realize that pretty quickly, or it seems like we have as a field that it's a double-edged sword. And mm-hmm. like we had a really great talk at the first Advancing Research Conference. Uh, I think the first talk was by uh, uh, Lisa Reichelt on the uh, dysfunctions of uh, democratizing user research. And I'm hearing you know, a lot more of sort of the negative side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're the first person I've talked to in a while about the topic that seems genuinely excited. And mm-hmm. I'm sure you're aware of uh, the drawbacks. What uh, mm-hmm. Do you feel like uh, the, the positives far outweigh the negatives? Well, as with research, context matters, right? Mm-hmm. And I certainly am aware that it's not all roses. And I think from my perspective, along with identifying the democratization of research as an opportunity to scale what many of us purist researchers might call low-level kinds of work mm-hmm. or uh, work that we can teach and uh, replicate in activity so that you know we have more time to to do other kinds of research um, it, it ought not go without some level of governance or um, uh, leadership such that we are not sacrificing quality. And I am such a purist and recognize that in giving it all away, as it were, uh, there's this expectation that when you do train and teach others, that they aren't going to get it all and mm-hmm. they don't. But I think in connection with what it means to train people, you have to maintain the relationship, which I found to be a necessary part of working with our stakeholders, working with our partners, and continuing to craft the narrative around the value of research. Now, there are only so many things that I can teach as well. Like I can't teach you the things that I've learned uh, in my doctoral program around research and statistical analysis and uh, recognizing the value of sample size and how that connects to understanding our audience and things that really come over time. But what I can teach you how to do is to understand the, the value of the knowledge of a range of frameworks can add to your understanding of the experience. And that I think is an important takeaway in a world where research is often misunderstood for those who are not researchers mm-hmm. and for whom research is relegated to usability testing. Uh, research is certainly more than that. And I think there is an opportunity to both capitalize on that, but also to recognize that, that that's our way in to those who don't recognize that it's more than usability. And I'd like to think of democratizing research, helping those who um, may not know how to do even basic usability testing, that that's the gateway. Well, there's so much more. Let's well, talk about that and go further. And I love that you are saying that you, if I read you right, the relationship between the people with the deep expertise and the people to whom we're doing democratizing has mm-hmm. to be maintained. I think sometimes when we think about this topic, we're, we think, oh, we're just going to like, here, here's the, here's the, 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 the three page handout on how to do user research. And we just spread that around walk the organization away. and walk away. Of mm-hmm. course, that's, that's a recipe for uh, doom and, and disaster. 
But let's take it back to what you're doing now, because mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm sure there's an interesting couple twists and turns that have happened at uh, Capital One to get you to be doing uh, the work in AI. Oh, yeah, um, because there was a jump to what I'm doing now. And so in starting as a, a, a researcher who was training other researchers and other non-researchers, um, I moved to actually building a community of practice program for our design team, our broader design team that allowed us to stand up several pods, if you will, in communities around design disciplines from research to content design to visual design um, and even um, you know, development. We have developers who are part of our design community and how do we create community around various disciplines within design when we are working in these pods. Mm -hmm. So when we are working with our product and tech and data science partners, and we don't often connect with others who are also visual designers or other researchers, how do we create the space for these discipline specific skilled designers to be able to go back and connect with others who are also in the space to share knowledge, to train and teach, to learn and to share best practices was the opportunity that I had next at the company to create these communities, which made sense for me too, as someone who studied socio-technical systems and what it means to bring different people together who had similar goals, but maybe different ways of executing on those goals. And so in many ways, it was a way for me to take the theory of what I understood were was the dynamic of how teams and people work together mm-hmm. in joint activity to applying it in a very practice-based way. How do we really pull people together who are doing work and creating products that real people are using or interacting with and help them to find connection and community with like-skilled individuals and continue to grow their craft and apply it in maybe newer, more innovative ways. Okay. Uh, So spent that time, about a year doing that, and then found my way to our AI design team where I am now. And um, I like to call myself serving a team. Uh, I'm sort of head of the team, but they actually do the the real work and make me look really good. But uh, the AI design insights team, which includes developing learning insights through uh, creating e-based learning or e-learning kinds of modules where we are training people uh, about how to create the kinds of experiences for our customers that are based on intelligent experiences and learning from those insights and then further piping those into the way we work. And also our research team that is conducting qualitative and quantitative research with our customers, internal and external, to better understand behavior and engagement to further um, apply to our learnings. And in particular, our team supports Eno, the customer-facing intelligent assistant Hmm. by Capital One that helps you manage your money. And so that, among other kinds of products and services around intelligence, is is where I live. So um, you know me well enough, I think, to, to know that Marrying qual and quant research is is very near and dear to me. Um, 
are you know because of the well okay my question is this uh are you able to fold in the the qualitative uh research or at least evidence you're you're obtaining into whatever your ai platform is or is that purely based on quant oh we we do both and in fact we I believe the same as you do. We have to marry the two and the best work exists by acknowledging that the numbers don't tell the whole story and that the qualitative research alone isn't sufficient of a story either. And it's combining them both that we get the full picture of the broader experience and of the bigger story. And so, in fact, I just had a conversation today with a colleague, a data science colleague of mine who um, uh, is one of my partners in responsible AI work where we're thinking through ethical ways of creating experiences that support our customers. But even before we talk about responsible AI, which is important in and of itself, mm -hmm. how are we ensuring that the quality of our work, research, data collection, otherwise, is rigorous enough such that we can even draw the right kinds of conclusions by connecting the qualitative data through conversations and interviews and focus groups with the numerical data that comes often from hundreds and hundreds of thousands of bits of data points to make sense of the big picture, but also the context in which those experiences really matter. And so uh, I'm on that journey now to continue that work of connecting our qualitative research with our, and quantitative research that is, with our data science work that I'm happy to say is a big part of, of the work that we do. So um, I'm going to put you on the spot. So I, I think this is where so many of us are heading. Um, I think in five or 10 years, it, this concept of a, a marriage of these different types of, of data, qual and quant, semantic and statistical, et cetera, et cetera, are, are going to, it's going to be the norm. And whether we call them insight teams or, or insight ops or whatever it might be, mm -hmm. it, it's not going to be that uncommon. Um, but you're a pioneer in this. You're one of the few people I know who actually has a job leading an insight organization of, of a sort. Um, what piece of advice do you have for the next generation of insight leaders? You are putting me on the spot. Mm -hmm. I like the question because I'm finding too that we have different understandings of what insights as a term actually means. Mm -hmm. um, and so while I like to think of results of our research as one thing, insights are what allow us to take what we learn and apply it to any other area of our work, but we can't do that in silos. And so what I would love to impart to other people, other orgs, other groups that are growing their own insights machines or insights teams is to recognize that the results alone aren't enough. How do we make sense of it? And how do we do it in a way that actually connects our customer experiences to the business value that the company really understands. Often there is this push and pull between, you know, getting the work done to the bottom line to answering the questions of the business, which is really important. That's why we exist. But I'm coming also from design where there's a big deal around the human, the person, mm -hmm. the experience of the customer who's 
whose perspective truly does matter and in many ways um, guides the work that we do, but it can be hard to connect them together. And I think insights allow us to connect them together in meaningful ways. And it's also, again, I'm going to use that word connecting because it allows us to connect with our partners and our stakeholders in ways that they recognize, that they value, um, and can see impact. So insights in and of themselves are highfalutin results, but what we do with those insights really matters. And so honing those skills and connecting with our with partners and stakeholders, recognizing that getting the customer experience right and understanding that perspective matters, but connecting it to the business value, the business impact is as important and is what makes it an impact, an insight that is digestible by our stakeholders, which at the end of the day is what we really want to happen anyway. So, um, you know, one of, a couple of things I'll take away from what you just said, um, you know, when we talk about uh, managers and leaders in design research, uh, we often talk about soft skills, also like uh, practitioners as well. And, and there's different soft skills and of course they're not really soft, they're pretty hard, but uh, those skills are, are different groups of, of those skills for different um, uh, types of work in our field. And if you're in, if you're in insights, it seems like, first of all, storytelling, hugely mm -hmm. important, but this skill of connecting, and I don't know what you call that, what you study uh, uh, in order to pick that up, but uh, that's, that's the thing that you're going to probably need to really be strong in to complement your high-end data science skills or, or ethnography skills or usability engineering skills or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break, though. Uh, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review, and my guest today is Jimmy Burge of Capital One. 
and many other pursuits, namely a couple of conferences. We'll get to those in a minute. But um, before we do, uh, let's dig a little bit into those soft skills for insights uh, leaders. Uh, I was talking about connecting and storytelling. Did you want to elaborate on that? I, I love that you pulled those words out and storytelling in particular, because you know, I, as I mentioned, I'm a technologist. I learned hard science of computer science. And one of the things that I actually had to learn and frankly, and still learning is the art of storytelling. You know, as, as computer scientists, at least traditionally, or at least as a computer scientist, I am not speaking for all computer scientists, but it, storytelling for us was, and is often writing code and getting a, comp, a compiled result, right? And, mm -hmm. and hoping that we're answering some set of questions through deep algorithmic development and strong runtime support. But to take that result, that is the, whether we're developing an interface or creating optima, optimally running systems is to also think about the impact of those systems on the people who are using them. And even as I was in the dissertation process, one of the things that my advisor always told me uh, and asked me actually was, what's the story? And it was really hard to understand what she meant. Um, and it took a while for me to get it that it wasn't about the thing that we were doing. It's understanding the nature of the value of that thing mm -hmm. relative to who's part of that experience with that thing. And that helped me to think about what it means to create a story and a narrative around how we show up, how we work with each other, how we do the work, how we even talk about the work. That in and of itself is a narrative. Mm -hmm. And it has been one of those journeys that I find myself on and am really pleased to also share to that extent that you know, storytelling is, is a form of design. It's a form of, of supporting the work in really valuable ways. So I appreciate your, your finding that and, and pulling it out. It took me back to a time back when, and uh, I appreciate that. Well, I, I'm uh, at some point, I'm going to push you to write a book on compiling, uh, uh, the code of <laughs> stories for, uh, computer scientists, but, uh, uh, oh, you heard well, it here. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the conferences though. So, you are involved in uh, uh, a couple. Uh, one mm -hmm. is blackcomputer.org, and mm -hmm. that is blackcomputeher.org, which is, as I uh, know from the site, it's uh, blackcomputer.org. Uh, it's dedicated to supporting computing and tech education, workforce development for black women and girls. How long have you been doing that? And tell us a little bit about um, what is it like to uh, create and curate a conference. And now that you're also curating a conference that already is up and running, are there some interesting contrasts between what you're doing at blackcomputer.org and the Advancing Research Conference? Wow. Two really great conferences that I actually think are wonderful complements to each other. So, so thank you for the opportunity to talk about Black Computer, the conference and, and the organization. Mm -hmm. The conference is actually the culmination of a year long set of activities and connection points with the community of, and its allies of black women and girls in computing. And we're almost five years old. We had our very first conference, uh, which we deemed the Black Women in Computing Conference back in 2016. And it included a mighty 24 people who 
were actually stalwarts in academia and government and industry research. And the idea was to come together and create a space where through research and facilitation, we were able to really dig into what it means to create a community for Black women. And why is that important? And what are the unique experiences of Black women in computing such that it might warrant this kind of support in this unique way? And here we are almost five years later, certainly have built that conference into over 200 people who are now going to be planning to come to our virtual conference next year. But it's also led to the development of other programs and it has grown an amazing community that has always been there, mm -hmm. but has been invisible, almost in plain sight. And so the opportunity for us, us has been to help to galvanize a really strong community of people who are strong and amazing and valuable contributors and give voice to that community in a way that we hadn't seen before. And in particular, the conference, it, it, it has helped to illuminate what often happens when we find ourselves at these high-tech conferences where we're one of a very small percentage of attendees. And at the end of the day, we might find ourselves in a hotel room converse, conversing with each other or we're closing out a restaurant because we found the two or three other black people or black women in the meeting. Mm -hmm. And we have conversations about what our lived experiences are like in this field. And so we thought, why does it have to be that way? In fact, no longer should it be that way. And it led us on a journey of creating not just a conference, but we've created programming, we've created uh, uh, support for high schools and middle school girls mm -hmm. to connect with each other. We have formed partnerships with corporations like XP and anita.org, which is the organization that puts on the celebration of women in computing, the Grace Hopper Conference, mm -hmm. which is the, the largest computing community and conference for women in the world and, and other organizations where we are amplifying the value certainly of black women in computing, but also the voice of this community in a way that we haven't really seen before. And it's been a fun journey and I'm excited about the work that we're doing because there's a whole lot more to come. And well, then I was gonna say connecting that with advancing research. Well, be before you do that, I just have a question about it. Um, yeah. So you, you talked about invisibility uh, yeah. and th there's what that, made me think of is invisibility outside that community or, or making the community more visible to itself. And now you've been doing this for five years, has that ratio of exterior uh, showing up for, for the world versus showing up for each other changed? Well, it's interesting that you asked the question because while our organization has been around for five years, the feeling of community or the feeling of visibility or invisibility has always been around. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that with the advent of black computer and, and frankly, there are other organizations that also seek to develop black women and black girls and or, or um, other communities that haven't always been visible and the, the reality is until we have equity in the field and frankly in the world, 
we'll need to continue to amplify voices that aren't in the room mm-hmm. or that are overlooked as contributors in the space. And because, especially in 2020, we've seen an increased awareness of these voices that are around us, we've been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And creating a community and the kinds of programming that blackcomputer.org uh, now does create uh, certainly raises visibility, but it's also a testament to the work that people who came before us have been doing for a long time. So we recognize we're standing on some mighty shoulders of a lot of firsts in computing um, who are actually part of our community who continue to inspire us and many of whom are on our board of advisors. But I think the differentiator for black computer and for the work that we're doing is that we also recognize the value of the community as being part of how we grow and sustain, which in and of itself is that visibility of our own voices, owning our own narratives, creating the spaces that we see and know we're making impact in mm-hmm. and recognizing that we bring enormous value. And whether or not you say we're there with value, we know that we have it. And I right. think that's that visibility that you are getting at and that I hope um, is obvious to those who are both in the community, but for those who see the work and who are our allies as well. And for next year, you, 2021, you have dates now, right? We do. Okay. We do. We are planning actually now our next conference, which will be the first weekend in April, April 1st through the 3rd. It will be in a virtual conference this year. And generally our conference for the last couple of years has fallen on the first weekend in April, Mm -hmm. which is one of the few times of year of the year that there aren't a lot of other activities, not to say that there aren't any other activities during that weekend, but we found that after having meetings earlier in the year, later in the year, that time of year seems to work for us. So we are excited to announce certainly unofficially now, but it will come more officially later that we are planning for a virtual conference, April 1st through the 3rd. Got it. Okay. Well, we're going to keep you busy in March and April because advancing research is March 10th through uh, 12th. That's right. And I'm excited about that too. And why, Jamika? Well, you know, you asked this question, Lou, not to sound so scripted here, but I I, I kind of ha- can't help but think this way. I did talk a little bit about Black Computer and, and uh, a little bit of our history and how we show up to the community. What I love about advancing research and the program and, and working with Natalie Hansen and, and Steve Portugal and you certainly, and Kathy Corbett and some really great people is one of the things that drew me into the work. And you'll you'll remember this because I'm sure you say this to everyone that you invite to participate. Um, as, as small and as amazing as that group is, so I'm really proud to be one of those people that you've asked, is that there is an element of developing the speaker and providing close connection with the speakers before the conference itself almost to the extent that it's a mentoring experience. And I view mentoring as a two-way experience. Certainly I have uh, whom I would call mentees who look to me for support, but I also see that as a two-way street. I actually look forward to talking with anybody, frankly, um, but certainly people who consider me a mentor because I learn from them too. And so for me, having that as an experience in such an organization like the advancing research space where we are truly and 
a part of a growing industry of people who are connecting and, and who are practitioners of an important way of doing work and problem solving, that's huge for me. And I get to grow my connection, my sphere of connection points and influence even more by learning from these people who are going to be speakers at the conference. Mm -hmm. That's an incredible aspect of, of the curation process that it was hard to say no to. And in fact, I didn't. So that for me, thank is you. Really <laughs> well, that's great to hear. And, um, you know, one of the things, uh, that I've learned in 2020, one of the, the, the silver linings is when you scratch the surface, uh, it's cohorts all the way down. So, um, we've had you as part of a, a cohort with Steve and, and Natalie to figure out this program and we're getting very close. That's exciting. And then, uh, you're talking about essentially cohorts of speakers that you'll, one you'll, that you'll be working with. And we know our speakers love that from our years of doing conferences and prepping them that way. This collaborative iterative process is, is really wonderful for everyone who participates, but, and I think you know this, but I don't know if you've experienced it. The attendee cohorts that we pioneered this year have created the same effect for attendees and the people who facilitate those groups of attendees. Uh, we make that an option now for our conferences. You can, when you register, you can opt to be part of a small group of around 10 people with a couple of facilitators. Great. Uh, we're finding that the facilitators, uh, are, um, we've done it twice now, and like most of them want to repeat it because they've gotten so much uh, value out of running uh, 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 essentially a, uh, a small group that attends and, and learns together throughout the conference. So I'm really excited uh, that you're excited. Uh, we, uh, we do have to wrap, but I have a one last question for you. You know it's coming, and it's this. Uh, what's the, what gift do you have for our listeners? Who do you want to tag, or what do you think they should be reading? What and who needs attention? You know what I'm going to I'm going to pull this back cuz I mentioned this in the conversation earlier today. I'm going to point people to uh, a couple of researchers who are in the AI space who are studying and creating a huge impact around responsible and ethical AI. And in particular, I want to give a big shout out to Timnit Gebru who is a, a stalwart in the field of ethical AI research, a computer scientist who has for many years, um, along with Joy Bulamwini, who is at MIT, to change the way we understand the impact of technology as it relates to classifying people through AI. And we'll point people to gendershades.org where they can learn more about this research and about these amazing women. So though that's my gift today. And to you, Lou, I thank you for the invitation to share with you today. Uh, Jamika, thanks so much. Uh, we've been talking with Jamika Burge, head of AI Design Insights at Capital One, co-founder of blackcomputer.org, uh, one of the curators on the Advancing Research Conference that Rosenfeld Media produces. And if you wanna learn more about Jamika, check out her website, jamikaburge.com, that's J-A-M-I, K-A-B-U-R-G-E dot com. She's on Twitter at J.D. Burge and Instagram at J.Jurious. Sort of rhymes with curious, but it's J.Jurious with a J. And uh, thanks again for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks, Lou.
listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. And please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com. Thank you.